Welcome to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio, bringing you insights and strategies to help you create a magnificent and fulfilling second half of life. Here's your host, certified professional retirement coach and best-selling author, Dr. Dorian Mincer. I want to welcome everybody to my fourth Tuesday Revolutionize Your Retirement interview with expert series. So I'm Dory Mincer. I'm owner of Revolutionize Retirement and your host for today. And I just feel like it's so timely to be interviewing Ellen today because not only is her research over the last 35 or so years so so important still in terms of mindsets about aging, about being mindful versus mindlessness, but also right now during COVID-19, our world is turned tipsy-toppy or whatever the phrase is. And I think it's so important to try to think about how her research and her thinking about mindlessness and mindfulness can help us as we're dealing with these really challenging and difficult times. So my my hope for today. So let me tell you a little about Ellen. I know probably most of you, when you read about her, but let me just, um, before I introduce her, tell you about her. Dr. Ellen Langer has her doctorate, and she's a social psychologist and the first female professor to gain tenure in the psychology department at Harvard University. She's the author of 11 books and more than 200 research articles written for general and academic readers on mindfulness over the past 35 years. Her best-selling books include Mindfulness, The Power of Mindful Learning, on becoming an artist, reinventing yourself through mindful creativity, and counterclockwise, mindful health and the power of possibility. More recent book, The Art of Noticing, pairs some really wonderful one-liners that are culled from her research with her original paintings. She has also edited the Wiley Mindfulness Handbook, which is an anthology on mindfulness in which leading researchers integrate work derived from her Western scientific theoretical base of mindfulness with research on Eastern-derived forms of meditation. She's been described as the mother of mindfulness and has written extensively on the illusion of control, mindful aging, strength, stress, decision-making, and health. Among other honors, she's the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and three Distinguished Scientist Awards the World Congress Award, the NYU Alumni Achievement Award, and the States Stats Award for Unifying Psychology. Most recently, she received the Liberty Science Genius Award. The citation for the APA Distinguished Contribution reads in part, her pioneering work revealed the profound effects of increasing mindful behavior and offers new hope to millions whose problems were previously seen as unalterable and inevitable. Dr. Langer has demonstrated repeatedly how our limits are of our own making. She's a frequent speaker on mindfulness at academic, professional, and public events. She's also the founder of the Langer Mindfulness Institute, and is a gallery exhibiting artist. So I met, I heard Ellen many times over the course of my life and have been a real and have read, I think, pretty much all of your books, Ellen. Then I had this opportunity initially to see some of her artworks. There was a wonderful art show in Rhode Island, and I saw some of her paintings there. And then my dear friend Jan Hively, who I know is on the call, and her partner Tom were visiting, and it happened to be when there was an art tour in the South Coast area where I have a home and also Ellen has a home. And so we ended up kind of driving over there. And it was so wonderful because we were there, the three of us, with with Ellen and got to see her work and talk with her. And it was there that I invited her to come today. And I was so pleased that she said yes. So here we are. So, Ellen, welcome. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. I I don't know if I can live up to that introduction. I'm sure that you will. (laughs) And so we just, Ellen and I decided it's just going to be a kind of a nice conversation. And so I thought we could just start because I I know some of the people on the call know about, you know, some of your research and I'm just assuming maybe not everybody does. So let's just start maybe with a little bit with some of the terms. Like, 
Can you help sure, us understand sure. what mindfulness and, and mindlessness are? <laughs> sure. Let me let me tell you that I teach an advanced seminar on decision making and uh, at Harvard. And I call it an illusion of seminar because I enjoy talking so that my my brief uh, comments will probably be anything but brief. So feel free to stop me. But mindfulness, as I study it, is mindfulness without meditation. And it's so simple that it almost defies belief when you hear the uh, consequences of increasing your mindfulness. That it's the simple process of noticing new things. That's all you need to do is notice new things. Mm -hmm. Now, virtually all of us are mindless almost all the time. We're not there, but when you're not there, you don't know you're not there. So when I say notice new things, people are oblivious to the fact that they're not noticing. One of the things that we've been taught since we're very young throughout life is to search for certainties. And when you think you know something for sure, you don't pay any attention. Why bother since you know it? But there are no certainties. Everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. When I give talks on this, I might ask people, how much is one in one? And you can imagine they, you know, groan or look, I see a sea of faces saying, oh, God, what are we in for? But it turns out, you know, they all say, dutifully say two. But one in one doesn't equal two all the time. If you're using a base 10 number system, one plus one is two. If you're using a base 10 number system, one plus one is written as 10. But easier to understand for those who are not sophisticated with respect to math. You take one pile of laundry, you add it to one pile of laundry, one plus one is one. One watt of chewing gum, add it to one watt of chewing gum, one plus one equals one. And in the world outside of abstract mathematics, one plus one probably doesn't equal two, as or more often as it does. And the point of this is to recognize that the things we think we know, we don't know. And if something is new, so if you're noticing new things, then it becomes new. You see what you didn't know, and then your attention naturally goes to it. So when we're mindless, we think we know the past overdetermines the present, uh, present. We're trapped in a rigid perspective, and all the while we're oblivious to this. We follow rules and routines blindly like automatons. When we're mindful, we have rules and routines, but they guide our behavior. They don't overdetermine our behavior because everything is changing. We become sensitive to context and perspective. And the fun thing about this is that this noticing of new things is exciting. As you're doing it, the neurons are firing, and it's the essence of engagement. So it's literally and figuratively enlivening, just noticing new things. So we have 40 years, as you mentioned, of research where we have all different kinds of people in all different kinds of contexts, and we teach them to be mindful. And we find when they're more mindful, um, they're, they live longer, health in general improves, we seem to, seem to be more attractive, our memory improves, people uh, see us as charismatic. The things we do mindfully bear the imprint of our mindfulness. So we have a situation where what you're doing, you're doing better, people can see it in the final product, you're feeling alive as you're doing it, and you actually are improving your health, and it's all so simple. It requires no effort. It's basically what we're doing when we're having a good time. You know, jokes. Now, here's where I, I often trick, my, trick myself up by thinking I should tell a joke to make the point, but we'll see whether I do or not. But jokes are You're only welcome funny. To. <laughs> okay. I, probably you couldn't stop me. <laughs> that jokes are funny because you're hearing it in one context and then you get the punchlines. Oh, I didn't realize it could have this other meaning. And that gives rise to you're enjoying it. So if I said to you, you know, there's this clairvoyant midget that escaped from prison. Yeah, there's a small medium at large. Not great, but it's not my day job. <laughs> All right, but, you know, so when recognize that when you're having fun, it's because you're, you're in the moment. Now, lots of people say 
be in the moment. And that's nice, but it's sort of an empty instruction. It's meaningless because nobody doesn't think they're in the moment. So the way to be in the moment is this simple act of notice. And as I said, the effects are astounding. You know, we, in the earliest study, we went into nursing homes and we taught old people to, I hesitate when I say old people now, this was 40 years ago and I'm approaching their age, but <laughs> we gave people choices and to, to make choices requires that you be mindful. And we found that they live long and that helped usher in mind-body medicine. So you're living longer, you're feeling better, and it's at no cost. So that's that's mindfulness. It's not meditation, which I also did research on many, many years ago. Meditation is also good. Meditation is not mindfulness. Meditation is a procedure you go through to result in post-meditative mindfulness. But once you're mindful, you're mindful. It doesn't matter how you get there. Oh, it occurs to me that now while we're not traveling, if you recall the last exciting trip you took, you know, so let's say you were going to go to Paris and um, you get on the plane and you've just spent a lot of money for that seat in your hotel and you can't wait and you get there and because you expect it to all be new, it is all new to you and, and feels good. All right. So that's just a way of holding on to, if you didn't laugh at my joke, that mindfulness is, is easy. It's just dealing with new. In a world where we've been taught to hold things still and rely on certainties. And that's one of the things that was most interesting to me during this whole pandemic is people's response to all the uncertainty. But what I'm suggesting to you and to your audience is that two months before all of this was happening, things were also uncertain. So people confuse their mindsets that they're holding still with what's actually going on. Things are changing. You want to hold it still, hold it still. But life becomes more exciting if you engage in all of these changes. I'm going to give you a chance to talk. If you don't jump in soon, I'm just going to keep going. Well, no, I love hearing what you're saying, and I could let you keep going. But let's let's stay with with people and uncertainty right now in this time of COVID nineteen, because I think it it really it's such an important time of thinking about some of your research in terms of of medicine, on what we believe, on thinking outside of the box, on you know how to be mindful given the uncertainty. Let me liberate a question actually from somebody else right now because I think it, it gets at it too. Lourdes from the UK says, those of us over 60 hear daily reminders of our vulnerability during the current crisis, yet as we age to face the reality of our mortality anyway, how do we keep the voices of alarm from undermining our joie de vivre yeah. so that we don't live yeah. in fear? How do how do we practice mindfulness now? Well, I, I myself am 73, and I, I found it humorous that four months ago, 90 was the new 60, and now it feels like 60 is the new 90. All of my students worry about me because I'm in that vulnerable group. The fact of the matter is that it's only a very small proportion of people who will get the virus. Of that, there's a, a small proportion of people who will end up dying. We need to take it all seriously, but we need to get on with our lives. It's nice for people to care about us, but you know, I think part of what we should be doing is caring for others and stepping outside of ourselves. There's an attitude that some people strike, which is of defensive pessimism. And I think that it needs to be replaced by a mindful optimism. So defensive pessimism is basically expect the worst and hope for the best. Now, that might sound good, especially the hope part, but both parts of that I have uh, real difficulty with. If you expect the worst, what's going to happen is you're stressed, which is very bad for your health. You expect the worst, we tend to get what we expect, all right, in a number of social psychological ways. So it's not a good idea to expect bad things. Then hope for the best. Hope is one of those things that has built into the world an expectation that failure is a real possibility. And I'd like to replace this defense of pessimism with a mindful optimism where we expect the best 
And then we just go about our business, living our lives moment by moment. You don't put your head in the sand, so we have a plan. So you wash your hands, keep your social distance, and so on, and all the things we've been advised to do, and then go about living. And what happens is that by doing this, and you have to remember that all we have in life are moments, and it's easy to make a moment matter. I don't think you should wake up and say, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do for the next month if this continues? What am I going to do for the next minute or so? And by doing that, everything will fall into place. But if you adopt this attitude of mindful optimism, you're building up your reserves so that should something happen, you're in a much stronger position to deal with it. And if nothing happens, you haven't wasted your time, caused yourself ill health by all of that stress. I tend to believe that the culprit behind virtually all disease is actually stress. And that if we were to take people, and we're doing some of this work, a word before all of this in China, we take people who are diagnosed with all sorts of terrible diseases. And we, if we were to ask them, we give them a couple of weeks because as soon as you find out you have something, nobody is going to be ecstatic. But we start taking measures after a couple of weeks about how stressed they are. And we repeat this every month or so. And it's my belief that the stress will determine the outcome of the disorder over and above any other factor. And everybody knows that stress at the least is uncomfortable. Most people accept that it's bad for you. And stress is a psychological phenomenon. You know, events are neither good nor bad. Depends on the the way we understand them. And typically, for the large majority of us, there's always a view that can lead us to feel relaxed and then continue engaging in day-to-day activities. That sounds really important to think about, of kind of opening to looking at things really, as you're saying, in different ways, but opening to the possibility of just the next moment rather than the foreboding of too far down the road, I guess. No, Yeah. Nobody knows. Right. You know, people, when they're holding still, they think they can predict. But right. prediction is an illusion. If you, if you go back in time, like let's, let's go to 2006 and we say, what is the likelihood that we're going to have a black president of the United States? People wouldn't have taken the bet. You know, they bet against it. You go more recently and we say, what is the likelihood that Hillary Clinton is going to beat Donald Trump? And again, most people would have put their money on uh, Hillary. But in, in mundane situations, you know, we can't predict any more than these large global events. And we don't need to, to live in the realm of abstraction. Just take care of moment-to-moment living and um, life should be fine. Mm-hmm. So to, to answer your caller, let people tell you that you're vulnerable. There's some new data out that men are more vulnerable than women, so you can relax a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's all made. It's all basically made up. Nobody knows. Mm-hmm. And if you feel old, you will act old. You will become more vulnerable. And we did a study many years ago called the counterclockwise study. It's actually a famous study. And the reason I can say that is because if you watch Simpsons go to Havana, they've actually discussed the research. So that means I've made it in this world. What we did, we took a retreat and retrofitted it to 20 years earlier and had people, old men, and they were indeed old. This is when 90 was 90. So they lived in this retreat for a week, five days actually, as if they were their younger selves. They spoke about past events in the present tense. They saw movies, television shows, and what have you, all about the past. And we took lots of measures before we started, and then again at the end of this. And we found that in this short time, vision improved, hearing improved. Now, when have you ever heard hearing or vision improve for older people? Their memory improved, their strength improved. And we had taken photographs of them before we started and then at the end. And we gave those photographs to people who knew nothing about the study to rate how old the people looked. And they looked noticeably younger. 
the truth be told, they didn't look 20 years younger, but still noticeably younger. And we replicated this in Italy. The BBC replicated it, and it was replicated in, let me see, the Netherlands and South Korea. So they, you know, you had, when you were introducing me, you said our limits are of our own making, and this is an example of how that is so, that all of the things we think we can't do, but we need to question. And so... I, perhaps different from the person who asked the question, I have to remind myself that I'm not 50 years old, or even 40 years old. You know, I'll be helping some woman, not in the proverbial helping across the street, but to do something. And my dearest friend will say to me, you know, she's probably younger than you are. <laughs> and I say, oh my goodness, that, that might be the case. So there is a way that our chronological age is really not that important. It's the way we organize our Ourselves, the way we approach the world and the activities in which we want to engage. I think that's so important. I think it's been part of the paradigm shift that we've been seeing around aging that, you know, if you accept some of these myths or you accept them as fact, I guess, then you become that way. Can, can you, yeah. with your study, I love the part when you describe, you know, when your research assistants go off and you're left with these men and, and all their bags. I mean, I think it's just yeah. that example. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, so when we did, when we did this study and it was a low budget study and so I'm on the people who are in this particular group and listening to music from the past and so on. And my graduate students and postdocs who were running this with me were off getting the, some of the equipment we were going to need. And it wasn't until we arrived at the retreat that I realized that here I was with eight old men, and that meant eight suitcases. And this was before women were fully aware that they you know, are strong and what have you. I mean, I just said to myself, there was no way I was going to carry those suitcases. And so, you know, spontaneously, without thinking in terms of research design, I announced this to them and I said, look, you know, you're responsible for your own suitcases and I don't care if you move them an inch at a time or you unpack them here and take up to your rooms a shirt at a time. It's up to you. And that set the stage for a very different week that they were going to experience, then I think that anything they experienced in the past 10 years where people were, you know, loving family, over caring for them and depriving them of feeling a sense of control over their lives. And remember, I told you that that original study we did, which where we gave people choices by returning choice making to people and helping them then become more mindful had the effect of them actually living longer. So I had added this to the study unwittingly, but it turned out to be good. <laughs> and they all got their suitcases to their rooms, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. You know, it was a long time ago, so I don't remember whether yeah. I actually took a shirt up for somebody or not. But, <laughs> but basically, basically, they knew the rules for that week where they were in charge right. of themselves. And they reminded each other of this. And, you know, we had also sent pictures to them, to everybody in their group, of their younger selves and mm -hmm. helping people see the younger selves and the people they were surround, you know, that were part of the group. And uh, so they worked together and, you know, resulted in enormous changes that were noticeable. You, the, from the moment they got there and they saw that they were going to be, as you reminded me, taking care of their own suitcases, the changes were palpable almost from the start. And it just increased over the week. And so there's a lot of information there for the rest of us, you know, that when we think we can't do something, we, you can never have evidence that you can't do something. All you can have is evidence that the way you tried didn't work. And we, you know, let's take vision. I myself, I said I'm 73. I don't wear glasses. Several years ago, I, I used to wear a contact lens in one eye. And at night, one night, I'm killing myself trying to take this damn thing out of my eye. And then all of a sudden, I realized I never put it in. Mm -hmm. 
and I saw fine all day. And I said to myself, you know, I'm studying these things. I should do these things. And I haven't worn glasses or contact lenses since. That our vision, like everything else, varies throughout the day. If you catch yourself, you know, something happens or there's something you can't see, the mistake people make is to think, well, that's just the way their vision is, rather than at this particular moment in time, perhaps because mm. you're tired, uh, perhaps it's something you really don't care about, a number of things you might not see. So we did this study where, you know, and it's, it's clear, it should be clear to your listeners already that I'm odd, that you go into the doctor's office to take an eye test and you have the Snellen eye chart, the, which is the letters get smaller as you go down the chart. Now, for me, being strange, when I see this chart, I say, wait a second, somebody is expecting that soon I'm not going to be able to see. So we took the chart and we reversed it and tested people, where now as you go down the chart, the letters get larger, thereby creating the expectation that soon you will be able to see. And what we found was that people could see what they couldn't see before. In another study, most people, when they're taking these eye tests, believe around two-thirds of the way down the chart they're not going to be able to see. So we created a chart that started two-thirds of, uh, excuse me, a third of the way down. So now two-thirds of the way down, we're going to be much smaller letters. And again, people could see what they couldn't see before. Our minds are so much more powerful than most people realize. So we have... 40 years of data looking at how we can essentially change our minds to improve our bodies and our well-being. We did a study that people might find interesting with chamber, chambermaids. I was we just going to ask you about that one. Yeah. yeah. And the first thing we did was ask them, how much exercise do you get? Well, they thought exercise, according to the Surgeon General, is what you do after work. And they're just too tired after work, so they don't do any exercise. Now, if exercise is good for your health, and these women are exercising, one would assume that they're going to be healthier than similar others, people in the same socioeconomic backgrounds and so on, who don't get exercise. It turned out they weren't any different. We'll get back to that. So then what we did was we took half of these women and we taught them, you know, your work is exercise. Making a bed is like working on this or that machine at the gym and so on. So now we have two groups, one group that believes their work is exercise, the other group that doesn't. We took lots of measures before we started, and then at the end, we're asking people, are you working any harder? We asked their boss, is she working any harder? Are you eating any more or less? So there were no differences. We did find that those women who now saw their work as exercise lost weight. There was a change in waist-to-hip ratio, body mass index, and their blood pressure came down, just, we believe, from the change in their mindset. The things that we're capable of are enormous, and I think that when we have facts and we hold these facts still, what we're doing is limiting ourselves. You know, the facts that most of us use were deduced from science, but science doesn't give us absolutes. You run a study, and it doesn't matter if it's psychology, medicine, biology, any study, that basically the results tell you that if you were to do the exact same thing, which of course you can never do, but let's assume for a moment that you could, you would probably get these results. And those probabilities are given to us as absolutes. One, you know, one plus one equals two. That's it. There's nothing else to think about. Well, as I tell this story often, I was at this horse event, and this man asked me if I'd watch his horse because he was going to get his horse a hot dog. Now, as you mentioned, or you didn't mention, I'm a Yale PhD. I've been at Harvard for 40 years. I mean, I know. And I'm trying not to be rude to the person. I say, sure, not to worry. I'll watch your horse. He comes back with the hot dog, and the horse ate it. And it was then that I knew that almost everything I thought I knew could be wrong. (laughs) And so rather than be afraid of not knowing, it opens up, again, a world of possibilities. And so, and those thoughts gave rise to to the studies that I've just described. There's a whole other series of studies 
based on possibilities that we've conducted that I think your listeners might find interesting. And it's relevant to COVID-19. Now, uh, clearly, I haven't done research with the virus yet. It would be too difficult. But we've done it with so many illnesses that I tend to think that we'd get positive results here as well. We've done this with MS. We're doing it now with Parkinson's. We've done it with chronic pain, arthritis, stress, depression. We're doing it with stroke. We've done it with ALS and so on. And it's a very simple procedure. So if you should get the virus, I'm suggesting that you go through the steps I'm going to describe right now. First thing is to understand that for whatever disorders we have, we tend to only notice when we have the symptom. Let's just take stress. You know, when you're stressed, you know you're stressed. And so then people think they're stressed all the time. Nobody is anything all the time. Okay, so the key to what I'm going to tell you is to notice when you don't have the symptom. So what we do is we contact people throughout the day at random times throughout the week, sometimes two weeks, and we simply ask them, do you have the symptom now? And if so, is it greater or worse than before? And why? Well, three things happen with this. By searching for why, well, first, by noticing that it's changed, you realize you you weren't stressed or in pain or whatever all the time, and so you feel good. By searching for why now is it different, you're engaged in a mindful pursuit, and as I've already said, that's good for your health. And then finally, that the likelihood of finding the solution is, of course, much greater if you look for a solution. So across all of these disorders, you know, MS, chronic pain, depression, big things, we found relief that results from this mindful noticing variability. It's really just being mindful, noticing change. When is it better? When is it worse? And uh, what happens now most of the time is you get a diagnosis and then your presumption is that it's going to stay the same or get worse. Nothing moves in only one direction. So why is it a little better right now? Why is it a little worse? And seeking that answer, again, is being mindful. And I think even with COVID-19, we would find an alleviation of symptoms and probably cure. That's that's so fascinating. I mean, I... Just sort of thinking about it for these other other situations, I I had read in your book about people's depression, and it made so much sense of just noticing, just as you're saying, noticing the variability. Can tell? Can you talk a little more about that? Because I think I mean that just seems so important. Of just, it's not the same all the time. It's it's sort of kind of think what you say that change is inevitable. Change is always the uncertainty is always. So it's like embracing that in some way. It's what? Embracing the... That yeah, so that's always. what we need. Yeah. Now, I'm glad you said yeah. that. What we need to do is we can't get rid of uncertainty. What right. we want to do is embrace it and exploit the power in uncertainty. And it's easier to do that when we change the way we think about uncertainty. Right now, especially for women, but not exclusively, that people tend to make a personal attribution for uncertainty. I don't know it, but it's knowable. So, and they're going to think less of me, so I'll hide, pretend, or whatever. The fact that I don't know it. We want to change that to a universal attribution for uncertainty. I don't know, you don't know, nobody knows. And when you do that, not knowing, accepting not knowing that nobody knows, it's much easier to engage the world around you. And if you're surrounded by some or interacting with somebody who thinks they know, you now have the key that they're deluded, whatever. And so you don't let them intimidate you. 
So not knowing is fun. It's especially fun when we recognize, as I said before, that outcomes don't come prepackaged. Outcomes are just events. The way we understand them determines how we feel about them. So if you see it as negative, you're going to feel stressed and negative. If you see it as positive, you'll feel positive. Or to see it as neutral, eventually get to the point where you just see it. I mean, if I were to go out to dinner with you and the food was wonderful, that's great. If I go out to dinner with you and the food is awful, that's great. I'll eat less, presumably. <laughs> you know, when you're looking at behavior, you can see yourself in a negative light. I can see myself as gullible or I can see that what I am is trusting. You can see yourself as inconsistent and take yourself apart or you can see yourself as flexible and so on. It's interesting that for every mm-hmm. adjective we have to, or adverb, whatever, describing us, there's an equally potent but oppositely valenced alternative. And so you worry about being boring. That's because from your perspective, you're being stable. I can see you as, oh, I don't know, you know, as impulsive, but from your perspective, you're being spontaneous. So when we recognize that the world doesn't give us outcomes, the world gives us events that we frame, and the way we frame it is up to us, life uh, becomes much more exciting. You know, you think about stress, especially now since so many people are stressed. Stress requires two things. It requires a prediction that something is going to happen and that when it happens, it's going to be awful. And you want to question both of those. So I'm telling you things are unpredictable. If you say to yourself about this thing that you're worried is going to happen, give yourself three, five reasons why it might not happen. So you went from thinking it's going to happen to realizing it may or may not. Now, assume it does happen. How might that actually be a good thing? And that's a little harder when you're thinking of the virus, but even then we can do it. But take other stresses in your life just to make it easier. You know, I'm not going to play it through because each of us torments ourselves with different things. But the point is that when you see this thing you thought was negative can also be a blessing. Then you've gone from this negative thing is definitely going to happen to this thing may or may not happen, and if it happens, my experience of it will be however I've decided, chosen to understand it. I think people sometimes talk about the experience of having had a diagnosis of cancer and then surviving, but but how it, as as you're saying, it it changes the way they notice the world or how they see in the world. Yeah, and there's data on this, yeah, for both cancer and heart attacks that Mm -hmm. for many people, that's when they first come alive. The sad thing is that that often lasts for six, eight months for people, and then they go back to their mindless existence. But and so that's actually an upside of all that we're going through right now is that we can learn different ways of being. And if we're in this position for an extended time, then maybe that will become our new our new normal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's hopeful. <laughs> I mean, that is the optimistic part, and you know, and I. I tend to be an optimist or try to be an optimist myself. So Bob from Kentucky asks, if if mindfulness is easy and and there's no cost, why are people not more mindful and how do we bridge the gap to be mindful easily? Yeah, that's it. Bob, that's a very good question. And I've been asked it a lot and I've thought about it a lot. You know, I can't be sure, but I think that it sustains the status quo. You know, if I'm on top and everybody thinks that everything is as it should be, which is the test that brought me to the better schools, the grades I got in the better schools, they brought me to the better position and so on, that all of that was valid in some absolute way and could be no different, then nobody questions my position. Everybody accepts their lot in life. You know, I I just am in the middle or finishing actually a new book where I talk about the mindlessness of the normal distribution. And the normal distribution is a few people have nothing of it. Most people have a medium amount. Some people have a lot. You know, a few people have a lot. And that would be talent, abilities of all sorts, and so on. 
And I question that, you know, that I, I use the example often of art. When I was a kid, I thought those people who were good in art, you know, the people who were creative were the ones who could draw or were in band or whatever. And so it just wasn't a way I understood myself. And then I had some fortunate experiences. And first with a teacher when I was an undergraduate who I had come up with something she hadn't thought of. And that meant to her that I was creative. So she called me creative. I had another professor who I wrote a program text instead of a paper for an assignment, not realizing I was doing anything strange. And he talked to me about my chutzpah. So here I had double permission to be different. So I started to be different. And, you know, and it, it worked wonderfully to my advantage. But if one doesn't give themselves permission and they they assume that they don't have it, then the people who have it are not so inclined to share it. You know, it's nice when everybody thinks you're a genius. I laugh at it oftentimes. But so the reason, repeat what I'm, what I'm suggesting without data, is that part of what sustains all the mindlessness is it's a way to maintain the status quo, to keep the haves mm-hmm. in the position of having. Mm-hmm. And it's the way we teach people in school. So you're taught to memorize one and one is two, horses don't eat meat, and what have you. And as I've told you with both of those instances, it's simply not true across t- you know, context. Yeah. Information is context dependent, but we're not taught to notice the way things change across different contexts. Mm-hmm. As a result, many of us don't achieve the things we'd like to achieve. And, you know, things like happiness, most success, what have you, are not normally distributed. They are normally distributed, but they need to be. Even food, you know, there's enough food in the world for everyone to eat. Why is it that you go to the grocery store and pay these enormous sums, which keeps others from not having? I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go there and answering it, but the, the larger point is that somebody wins by keeping everybody Mm. mindless. You know, right, if we have an army and we tell all the privates and sergeants are telling the private what to do, and the private does it because they think that's what they're supposed to do, things run smooth. It might not be the best. You know, we go to uh, the doctor and the doctor tells us, and here I know it's not the best thing for us more often or as often as not, to just do what the expert says. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as expertise. However, expertise is not absolute. And when we treat it absolute, we're being mindless, and that's not working in our best interest. Mm. So that relates. So Barbara from New Jersey says, knowing, back to kind of what you were just saying a few moments ago, knowing that such life-changing events such as cancer, diagnosis, or heart attack can trigger a new appreciation for life or a more mindful approach to living, but that it only lasts a few months and returns to the status quo. So she wonders, are humans born with kind of a set point for such things as mindfulness, happiness, and gratitude? No, I don't think so. I think, again, that the culture often pushes us in that direction. You know, if you're a rate breaker, if you don't follow the rules, the people who want you to follow the rules have to find some way of squeezing you back into the model. And, you know, it's certainly not the case that it doesn't change anybody's life for an etern- you know, for the rest of their lives in these diagnoses. Remember that all research are only probabilities. So that means that for when people are given the diagnosis, only some of them will then come alive. Of those who come alive and realize life is precious, none of us know how long we're going to live, of those, some people will continue that way of being for the rest of their lives. So, and that's what we want to do. I don't think we want to be sealed in an unlived life. And we don't need to wait until we're given some terrible diagnosis to start living. We should start living right now. And that's an advantage of the current circumstances where people may come to see, gee, you know, uh, I'm probably not going to live forever. And how do I want to make these moments matter? And as I said before, all we have are moments. So that if you make the moment matter, your life will matter to you. And interesting, if you make the moment matter, you end up with more moments, so our data suggests. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
almost like each moment becomes a wake-up call for another yeah. moment and another step. It's it's a little bit of a shift. Well, let me stick with, with this other question before I ask you my other question. But Colin from Hawaii says, he says, seems like mindfulness is closely related to the power of positive thinking and the consequences of self-fulfilling prophecy. In gerontology, yeah. this seems related to the need to think about the negative consequences of ageism and the need to promote an active aging perspective. Age as an asset and not age merely as a sick care. Please comment. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, there are several parts of that. First, not just aging, but anything that's seen in a negative light has an equally potent, oppositely balanced alternative. And so no matter how you see yourself, you want to, you, you need to know that there's another view that may be more flattering and more exciting to impose on yourself or on others. I am called, you said that I was called the mother of mindfulness. I'm also called the mother of positive psychology. So I'm aware of all the data on positive psychology. But what I want to suggest is we need to have an awareness that things are not positive. They're not negative. They're just things. Events just happen. And that we then go about understanding these events in particular ways. Now, the culture often tells us that certain things are negative, that culture told us that aging was negative. And, you know, and, and we've taken this on over the last 40 years to change that view. And it's important that we continue to do this. The, but it's not positive either. You know, we're choosing to see it as positive because that feels better. It's nothing one way or the other. Now, there are many attributes that uh, go along with getting older that need to be examined, and some we've done in our research, like memory, for example. You know, I laugh at this every time I give my Harvard undergraduates an exam, and the exam comes back without all of them getting 100%. They don't get 100% because they've forgotten. Young people are not infrequently forgetful. What happens with memory is that if you don't give a damn when somebody is talking to you about something, you're not going to know it later, not because you've forgotten it, because you didn't process it at step one. And so much of what masquerades as memory loss is disinterest in the first place. You know, when I was 30 years old and an up-and-coming, it probably mattered to me to learn people's names. Now, at this point, I just don't care, you know, that if we speak for a while or there's reason, I'll come to know your name, All right? So when I didn't know you, when I knew your name at 30, it wasn't because my memory was better. It was because I felt it would serve me better to know your name. Am I not knowing your name right now, if that is the case, is not because I can't learn your name. It's because I don't need it. You know, and if I need it, then I'll right. learn it. So, and also that I think that people worry about memory loss, even when the memory loss is real, you know, when when there is something we learned and we don't remember. Again, much of the reason that we don't remember is because the context has changed. You know, that my dearest friend will say something to me about a movie we saw, and I have no idea what she's talking about. Now, I could think it was because of my memory. But what actually happened is when I saw the movie, I was attending to different aspects than she was attending to. And so if you gave me the right cues based on how I processed it, I'd be more likely to remember. And also, I, you know, I have a couple of houses and I have lots of items in the various houses. And where are the scissors? Well, you know, if I live in a studio apartment and it only has one drawer where the scissors could possibly be, I'm going to know where the scissors are. If I have 10 houses, it's going to be harder to know where the scissors are. As you get older, you have many more conceptual scissors. <laughs> uh, you have many more instances, things to, you know, you're trying to remember which friend said what. If you have one friend, it's easy to know that was a friend. If you have a hundred acquaintance friends, it's going to be harder to be sure who said what and so on. So, and also that memory, many of the tests 
that people are given to assess memory are created by younger people. I don't have data on this, but see how it feels to you. But if you had a test where it had things on it like Frank Sinatra, Marge Canaster versus, I don't even know who they are, <laughs> singer, uh, Game Boy, and what have you, you know, I think the younger people would be more likely to remember the younger relevant stimuli, older people, the older relevant stimuli. And that even if there were data for us in particular showing that our memory is not what it used to, it used to be, so what? In most instances, it's not going to matter. Very few of us are going to end up uh, with dementia. And the more we worry about it, the greater the harm we're doing to ourselves. In fact, if, if you give me something to learn and I'm worried that I'm not going to learn it, the stress prevents me from learning it. And again, then when I don't know it later on, it's because I didn't learn it adequately in the first place. Excellent things to think about. So I'm going to still take some other questions from others and sort of put mine on the background. I, I want at some point to just hear a little about the mindfulness of, of, of your of, of being an artist that we all can be, but um, I'm going to stick with these other questions first. Bruce from uh, Massachusetts says, people tend to collaborate with biases. Ageism, for instance, is supported by the behavior of older people who receive a benefit, such as sympathy, by meeting expectations and being dependent or frail. Mindfulness would cause us to defy the predictive bias. And he says, per research by Susan Fisk at Princeton, how do you use mindfulness as an inoculation against hurtful behaviors or experience, such as bias, exclusion, etc.? Sure. I think the the thing to do is to recognize that behavior makes sense from the actor's perspective or else he or she wouldn't do it. And so when you do this, you might be angry at me for being gullible. When you recognize that I was just being trusting, you'd feel differently about me. And the same thing with the people who are doing to you whatever whatever they're doing. You know, the I get was a Tennyson who said walls do not a prison make or you know that we can't control other people's views. No matter what you do, one can take a negative view of it. So what you can do, you can try by giving them, you know, you call me gullible and I say, yes, I am gullible. That's because I'm trusting. And just go about your business. I think that the people who are harsh on other people are behaving, feeling in that way because of their own insecurities. And so rather than be hurt by this implicit bullying, I just feel sorry for the bully. And that feels empowering to me. So it maybe relates a little to this next question from Peggy in Arlington. I'm not sure if that's Virginia or Massachusetts. So she said, sometimes people are punished for seeing things differently or pointing out things against the status quo, like whistleblowers. So there can be positive and negative consequences. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, there are positive and negative consequences to no matter what we do. One can notice a difference and either point it out or not point it out. Whistleblowing aside, I mean, there are certain instances where we certainly should say something. But much of the time, if everybody is doing something and you think that there's a different or a better way, you can just do it that different or that better way. You can point it out. You can point it out in an obnoxious way, which I'm sure your caller wouldn't do, but, you know, where you're a little self-impressed and so on, or we can do it in a more humble way. So, you know, I, I find that when somebody is talking and I disagree, rather than acting as if they're wrong, I say that, well, you know, possibly, but in my view, and, you know, you're entitled to your own views, and then people often listen where otherwise they might not. Excellent. So let's Did I answer it? Yeah, I, maybe he can write back and Bruce, um, let me know if you feel like she answered your question. And if not, I'll ask it in a different way. So Bob from Kentucky says, was the recent pandemic toilet paper hoarding an example of an epidemic of mindlessness? So mindlessness is in essence, is, is in essence, is communicable more so than mindfulness is? <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, well, time will tell. I think I had somebody who helps me with my dogs when I'm uh, away who told me he bought 150 rolls. I said, you know, you're going to have to live a very long time to use all of those. Um, I think people get scared. and yeah. But, yeah, I, I would say that it probably is mindless. And although those people can turn around and now sell their toilet paper, I don't think you want to gouge people. But, you know, yeah, I, I think that hoarding in general is probably a sign of it's a sign of a belief that the quantity is in short supply and right. you're not going to be able to get it. And the more mindful you are, the the more you're aware of multiple ways you can meet your needs. They're also in Asia and I think it'll become more routine here as well. There are bidets that mm-hmm. obviate the necessity for toilet paper, you know, but be that as it may, yes, is the answer to your <laughs> caller's question. Now, let me let me tell you that I have my lab meeting in oh, 15 okay. minutes, so okay. we have an end point. Okay. Absolutely, and maybe we'll even we'll end before then, but there are a lot of comments that people make about how wonderful you are and how... Oh, well, those we have time for them, so <laughs> I will in a moment. <laughs> but I have a question from Virginia who says, how can we... I, I is Virginia, Virginia her name or... Her name is her Virginia from Rockport, and again, Rockport could be in a number of different locations. I'm not exactly sure where she's from. How can we approach the election in November? Oh, it is from Rockport. I do know that. So, yes, I just saw who the email is from. So, Virginia asks, how can we approach the election in November in a more mindful way? I can't see anything positive in our life. If Trump gets four more years, it's overwhelming. Yeah, <laughs> this is a hard one. I tend to agree with Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, that, yeah, I think that if one has the belief that it's crucial to get Trump out of office, what we need to do is as much as we can to get him out of office and influence as many people as we can and be active in ways that we might not have been in the past. Ordinarily, I shy away from political questions. In this instance, no, I, I agree with her. I, I think that, yeah. I usually don't ask the political questions, but I did agree with that question, too, so I was interested in your response. Bruce has another question. He, he says, thank you for asking, and thanks to you for answering his question. And he, right. it's a wonderful segue for just a couple more minutes, since then we have to end, on about creativity, which is what I said I wanted to get to. And, and I mm-hmm. loved your book on becoming an artist. And he wants to know, are you still painting? How has your painting changed over the years because of mindfulness? And if it hasn't changed, yeah. what does that tell us? And so maybe just use that as a segue to talk about mindfulness and art. Sure. Art. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, first of all, let me let me say that creativity, when I wrote uh, the first book, Mindfulness, and also for the Unbecoming an Artist, well, each of them, I could have called mindfulness creativity. However, people have a mindless understanding of creativity where the emphasis is on the outcome, whereas mindfulness, the essence is on the process. So you can call it mindful creativity or just mindfulness. And I started to paint when I turned 50, around 50. And I tell the story, which is too long for me to go into now, in the beginning of the I'm Becoming an Artist book. And it was just great fun. And so I just kept pursuing it. And there were things that happened while I was painting without knowing what I was doing that led me to question you know, things in general that people accepted. The idea of mistakes, for instance. A mistake in one context is a success in another. An example I often use when I'm lecturing is you have this company that produced this glue, but the glue failed to adhere, which is a terrible mistake. The CEO must have been stressed beyond belief. But instead of ending the process there, took that glue that failed to adhere, 
and turned it into a post-it note. So it was a failed glue, but a very successful product. And everything that we do has a context in which, in fact, it can be quite successful. So that, and then I found while I was painting that if I knew what I was trying to accomplish and then I made, quote, a mistake, the important thing was to go forward rather than try to bring it back to what I had in mind and let it become whatever it was going to become. Then it became truly mindful. And we did this research where we'd have people oh, draw something, then copy it, copy it, copy it again, versus draw something, copy it, make it new in very subtle ways that only you would know. All right, so they'd copy it, but then at the end, make it new. We'd mix them all together and have people tell us which ones they liked the best. And invariably, people liked the ones that were mindfully drawn. So our mindfulness seems to leave a footprint on the products we produce, whether it's art or, you know, or anything else. But for me, I think that at the beginning, I just sort of gave myself permission. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm not sure I still know what I'm doing. I think that probably my mindfulness while I'm painting has not changed enormously since, remember, I've been studying this for 40 years. But it, it's just great fun. I think that everybody should try it. And you realize that our notions of talent, you know, the people that whose paintings, the impressionists whose paintings cost millions and millions of dollars, that all of these paintings were rejected in their day. <laughs> so go paint and know that in some distant future, perhaps your painting will be revered in, in the same fashion. <laughs> I, I paint just because it's great fun. And as a psychologist, I paint to see what things make me nervous, what things am I having trouble with and why? And then I I relate those answers to things happening outside of the, the world of my... I do a lot of paintings with dogs. Sometimes the dogs feel very human. That started in perhaps a mindless way that the friend I keep talking about would look at the painting and it turned out if I had a dog in it, I would get praise. So I kept putting dog. And, but then, you know, there's always some mindlessness. I remember I had asked... I was trying to make a black dog for friend whose dog just died and I was having such trouble with it. And he said, Ellen, you're the Leonardo of the white dog. What is the problem? Just make a white dog and then paint it black. You know? <laughs> so, you know, but, but my response to my mindlessness, and this is probably a good place to end, is probably very different from other people's. Every time, because remember, now I study this, I have a vested interest in it, that every time I find that I've done something mindless, which and it happens, certainly. I say, yes, I'm right, <laughs> rather than worry about it. So that is it. There you have The comments just are thanking you for just being as wonderful as you are and sharing and it resonates with people and some suggestions of, you know, dealing with the stress that we're all under right now and thinking about aging. So I'm just so delighted that you've been here. Is there any final takeaway you'd like? to just leave everybody with? Just be mindful. Be mindful, it's yeah. It's easy That's and it. it's fun. <laughs> but I've enjoyed this, so I thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being here, and thank you all for being participants. And everybody stay well and safe and mindful, okay. and kind and generous and mindful optimism. I really like that term. <laughs> so goodbye, everybody. Thanks a lot, and thank you so much again, Ellen. Take care. You've been listening to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio with Dr. Dorian Mincer. To learn more about the resources mentioned on today's show, listen to past episodes, or download our free retirement transition guide, visit revolutionizeyourretirementradio.com.